Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Aslai Adintashbash. Aslai is a writer and journalist and a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She's speaking to me from Istanbul, and our conversation will focus on Turkey's shifting foreign policy approaches in the Middle East. Aslai, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Bill. Good to be here. Greetings from Istanbul. You know, it's our um, 100th podcast, so I'm very pleased to have you as my guest on this particular milestone. What a success. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Turkey's role in the Ukraine war is an interesting one. On the one hand, selling the uh, TB2 drones to the Ukrainians. On the other, hosting peace talks. What is the game plan that President Erdogan is playing and, and how well is he playing at it? Well, this is very interesting because, as you say, um, Turkey is, has very close relations with Russia and with Vladimir Putin personally. Erdogan has been on good terms with him for a number of years now, sometimes uh, much causing much concern among Western allies, but it's also been very close to Ukraine. Uh, yes, Turkey does sell armed drones to Ukrainian defenders that are now being used on the battlefield to target uh, Russian forces, and, and quite effectively so. These are the same drones, TB2 Bayraktar drones, that have been also used in uh, by Turkish forces, Turkish army in Libya and Syria. So um, the relationship is quite strategic. Uh, Turkey also does uh, work on common defense projects with Ukraine and has continued to supply Ukrainians with drones. So there's this incredibly interesting balancing act, which I don't know if any other NATO country would have been able to do it because it does involve a certain amount of public duplicity as well, I have to say, in the sense that, you know, Turkey sells these drones, but is has not slapped Russia with sanctions, has not gone along with Russian sanctions. There's often uh, positive statements between Ankara and Kremlin, yet, you know, there's this war going on in Ukraine. I think, and then mediation efforts. Erdogan has been very involved in uh, uh, trying to get uh, a Turkey-centered mediation going. Obviously, he's not the only person trying this. We're also seeing the French President Macron uh, very much talking to both sides. But um, in some ways, I think what Turkey wants is several things use this crisis as an opportunity to improve relations with the West and certainly with NATO partners. And, you know, that, and as you know, that's been uh, very much up and down and quite tense at times, but also economically perhaps uh, benefit somewhat from the crisis by providing uh, a, maybe an economic lifeline to Russia, at least trying to prevent an entire, uh, you know, the, the loss of revenue from Russian tourists, making sure that relations are not so bad that R Russian tourists cannot come to Turkey. And also Turkey has not gone with Western sanctions. So you have this very interesting uh, policy that seems to work. The engagement with both sides is rather deep. And yet somehow 
both Zelensky and Putin seemed to accept that Turkey is playing this uh, neutral role. We're far from mediation at this point, particularly in light of uh, the, the recent sort of um, uh, possible war crimes that were, that came out of Bucha and some other places. But still, it's not over. What started between Lavrov and the Ukrainian foreign minister continued in Istanbul between Ukrainian and Russian delegations. Now, there might be a third round a few weeks from now. So um, interestingly, yes, Turkey is doing a balancing act, and, and some would say hedging. So in that sense, it is certainly, this is certainly an opportunity for Erdogan both to once again tur- make Turkey relevant, particularly for the Biden administration, and improve relations with NATO partners. Mm-hmm. I should also add, Bill, that Turkey is not just a Middle Eastern country. It's also a Black Sea state. It does control the Bosphorus and Turkish Straits, Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, and has announced that it is closing it to warships unless their home ports are in the Black Sea. So this is based on the Montreux Convention from the late 30s, from 1938. And the fact that Turkey has done this was almost seen as taking a position. At least Ukrainian president has applauded it. So, um, you know, Erdogan seems very careful and cautious and unwilling to antagonize Putin, but also very clear that this presents an opportunity for Turkey to come out of the doghouse break its isolation and and elevate perhaps his own stature in the international space. Well, as you say, it's a, it's a balancing act and, and a rather delicate one right now. But uh, shifting to the Middle East, uh, can we start with Libya? Turkey was instrumental in turning the tide of the war against Khalifa Haftar's forces in 2019, but now seems to be working both sides of the street. What's the strategy? And again, how effective is it? Bill, um, you and I spoke about Libya briefly in a previous podcast. And Libya was always about ISMED. In other words, Libya per se was not, wasn't, obviously it's an important country, an important conflict, but the Turkish entry into that war was about trying to break up the what they saw as an anti-Turkey bloc, an Eastern Mediterranean. So East Med is very existential to Turkey's immediate interests. But now what we're seeing is uh, less need for uh, invol- deeper involvement or, or in the Libyan conflict, less need to push ahead um, because the East Med coalition, the fault line with with Turkey on one side and UAE, Israel, Egypt, Cyprus and Greece on the other, that, for lack of a better word, anti-Turkey coalition is already breaking up in some sense because of, uh, you know, de-escalation between Turkey and UAE, Turkey and Israel and so on. So Libya is now an instrument to project power, certainly, an instrument perhaps to 
further de-escalate with some of these countries. And that's exactly how it's now being, uh, being framed in many ways. It has become uh, uh, so uh, uh, the, the, the reason uh, for a Turkish UAE dialogue uh, in a very surprising way, as you say, we're seeing Turkey and UAE start talking about Libya, even though they were supporting the opposite sides in a, in a war uh, until uh, a year ago. So it's perhaps an instrument for de-escalation now. And for Turkey to be on the table, obviously, uh, they are supporting a UN-led process. They want to keep trade routes open, and, and, and I see an increased uh, trade uh, figures with Libya. But uh, other than that, I, I, they are okay with the current arrangements and not necessarily pushing further in Libya. Yeah, and and certainly less critical of, of Haftar um, and, and the arrangements, as you say, involve the, this UN plan uh, elections at some point. Um, but it's interesting, you make a very interesting point. It is strategic for Turkey. Uh, and, and of course, it's very strategic for Turkey with uh, Saudi Arabia. And we've seen a, just today a very interesting shift, which is that the trial of the murderers, alleged murderers of Jamal Hashoji, the Saudi journalist in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, that that's going to be shifted now to Saudi Arabia. Uh, what does this tell us about the, the keenness with which Erdogan wants to uh, improve ties with uh, Mohammed bin Salman? Well, it does scream that he is very keen to improve relations with Saudi Arabia. Very, very keen. Uh, that's, Bill, it's an incredible turn of events. In 2018, I was sitting here in my study in Istanbul and the Saudi consulate is not far from where I lived. I did take a walk down. And then uh, over the next couple of days, I was speaking to Turkish officials who were outraged, outraged at what happened. They knew Khashoggi. And, and it was also the broader political constellation with Saudis and UAE, Saudi Arabia and UAE, very much on the other side of the fault line, supporting essentially a boycott of Qatar and, and, and Turkey and so on and so forth. And Turkey seemed to be morally outraged as well. And Erdogan pretty much made this a big public issue. Turkish officials pursued a drip by drip public relations policy leaking information, they chose not to bury the story. And um, they, they were leaking information to the New York Times, Washington Post, and so on. So at some point, Erdogan himself wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post, expressing an outrage. But today we're in a very different place. What the Turkish prosecutors have done is essentially burying the case, sweeping it under the carpet. And the obvious reason for that is wanting to have better relations with Saudi Arabia. This seems to have been one of the conditions for, uh, for that. Erdogan is keen to travel to Saudi Arabia, if possible, during this Ramadan. And that can only happen if he can meet with with the Saudi crown prince, not just the king himself, but the crown prince as well. And I think 
this is one ticking a box. It's been one of the conditions for the Saudis for that um, visit and that photo op. Now, why is Erdogan, who had positioned himself as the sort of leader of the Sunni street and almost a patron of, of Muslim Brotherhood during the Arab Spring, why is he so keen on reversing course and traveling to Saudi Arabia? That has everything to do with the domestic dynamics, Turkey's economic situation, Erdogan's uh, declining voter support, and the fact that you have elections coming up next year, perhaps in less than a year, but certainly in 2023, it could even be earlier. So I think there is a sense that just like with UAE, which we can perhaps talk about later, but uh, investments from Saudi Arabia and direct swap lines, possibly direct swap lines to central Turkish Central Bank are absolutely necessary to prevent a calamity in the Turkish uh, economy. It is uh, very interesting, and I would, uh, perhaps we can talk later a little bit about the domestic situation too, but the idea right now is now that, you know, the case is, in quotes, of course, out of the way, Erdogan can travel to Saudi Arabia. We will get to the domestic situation, Aslai, but but let's talk about the UAE. You've mentioned it a couple of times, and it wasn't so long ago that Erdogan was at loggerheads with Mohammed bin Zayed, the de facto leader of the UAE and the Abu Dhabi crown prince. But my goodness, how times have changed. MBZ went to Ankara last November. The two met cordially, by all accounts. Erdogan reciprocated with a visit to Abu Dhabi in February. But, you know, you, you touched on this. There was this great com- competition between them. There was the Qatar dispute, Turkey supporting Qatar. Um, there was the war in Libya, as you said, different sides on that. And, and of course, the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, Ankara was a solid supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now they seem to be getting on like a house on fire. So how do you, how do you read this thawing of relations? Well, a similar story, Bill, but of course with different elements. Well, first of all, you can see that Erdogan uh, is a huge pragmatist, and that is why he has survived politically in Turkey, because, you know, unlike some of the Gulf states that we're talking about, he does have to win elections here. And for that, he does have to keep the economy going. At some point in early 2020, when tensions in East Med were really high, and it looked almost like even a kinetic confrontation was a possibility. And certainly Turkey and UAE were on different sides of the conflict, not just a competition, but almost an outright hostility. It looked like in 2020, it looked like Turkey was really isolated. It was regionally isolated and started economically suffering as well. And and the state of things, the fault line in MENA with Turkey on one side and UAE on the other, had also seeped into the European space, was instrumentalized by the European, you know, in the European space. And perhaps the only incident where a MENA conflict 
resonated in Europe. It's, we, we historically we tend to we're accustomed to seeing seeing it the other way around, and it was uh, it had become impossible to break Turkey's isolation unless it actively took measures to mend fences. Now, um, another there was another uh, very important event that precipitated the uh, rapprochement with UAE, which was, again, something we talked about, uh, a mafia boss, uh, Turkish mafia leader, with very close relations with the government, fled Turkey and started the, doing these incredibly popular videos. Uh, he's essentially a whistleblower talking about corruption and uh, some of the internal feuds within the government and, and really targeting the Minister of Interior, but talking, talking about drugs and, uh, and sort of uh, money changing hands and incredible stories of corruption. And this became an overnight sensation in Turkey. Not surprisingly, he took uh, refuge in the United Arab Emirates. And so the first instance of a contact between Turkish and UAE government was about security officials traveling to UAE to talk about the uh, Turkish mobster, basically asking uh, UAE officials to curb down his ability to, to do these videos which had become so popular that Turks were waiting for that time of the day when he had announced his next video would come up and, and really unearthing incredible scandals within the government circles and Erdogan's inner circle. So the first thaw in relations was effectively Turks going to UAE and saying, how, how can we, what can we do about this? And that, of course, led to other steps, including a visit by Turkish officials, later on a visit by the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Zayed, as you mentioned, and, and finally Erdogan's visit to the Emirates. There's also a financial component. Again, I should underline that Turkey is not eager, it is desperate for external financing. And um, Emirates, officials from United Arab Emirates have said that they're willing to invest in Turkey. This is not necessary. I think they've also extended swap lines to the central bank, but really they have started talking about $10 billion worth of investment in Turkish market and Turkish companies and, and some of the state companies in the sovereign wealth fund. So all of these things have led to the basis of the, of the conversation and what seems to be a new, a new um, I wouldn't exactly say a honeymoon, but a new, a new chapter certainly in bilateral relations. We saw very quickly the impact of that in Libya. And uh, of course, Ankara also curbing their support and external outreach to Muslim Brotherhood in various parts of the world. I think the places to watch out are also in the Horn of Africa, where you had seen Turkish Emirati rivalry, certainly Sudan and, and Somali and, and, and some parts here, even in perhaps in Syria. But, um, you know, the question is, 
do these two regimes trust one another? I think that um, it's hard to imagine that they do after what we've seen and done, but for now there seems to be a convergence of interests and uh, UAE having also identified a Turkish vulnerability in the economy and use that uh, for better improved relations. Very interesting chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm, indeed, indeed it is. And you mentioned Qatar. I mean, is Qatar still important to uh, Erdogan? Because Erdogan backed Qatar very significantly uh, in, in, in that uh, Gulf feud. How, how much does Qatar matter now to, to Erdogan? I would think that it still does matter hugely because the symbiosis between the regime in Qatar and the government here, particularly President Erdogan and his the, the group of people that are close to him is so deep and so multi-layered that Qatar is not an external relations. It's part of the family, so to speak. So uh, because of the number of investments Qataris have made in here in Turkey, the commercial, their commercial interests and so on, I think Qatar is still important, maybe not the only country Turkey has relations with in the region, but the, but, but, but the country that Turkey feels most comfortable with. There's a Turkish base in Qatar and huge investments, uh, Qatar investments here. The, net, the, you know, the, the cable network that I watch at home here in Turkey is owned by a Qatari company. The, the bank that my mother is banking with is now, you know, so the, the, over the past decade, this relationship has become very, very deep. They are on the same page. Qatar also does want Turkey to have better relations with European partners and, and regional partners and, and, and has, uh, was, I think, getting quite concerned about this uh, you know, more assertive, at times belligerent Turkish positioning in some parts of the, of the region. So uh, for now, it's, it, they are, it's in a good place. The relationship is here to stay because, here to stay because of the commercial links. Mm. Um, we've been talking about this fence-mending exercise that Erdogan is on. Another one is with Israel. Uh, in early March, the Israeli president met with President Erdogan in Ankara. For the first time in 14 years, such a high-level meeting had taken place. Again, how significant is that meeting? How important is Israel to Turkey and, and, and vice versa? You know, as you can see, Turkey loves extremes. Uh, there's no moderation needed here. When you mend fences, you mend fences with everyone. When you fight, you fight with everyone. So obviously Israel is a very significant regional player. And Turkish is really, Israel is also Turkey's oldest friend in this region. Before MENA started featuring hugely in Turkish foreign policy, before Turkey had turned to the Middle East as a, as a possible, possible arena for power projection and, and foreign policy, it was friends with Israel. This relationship goes back decades. Uh, yet, as you know, starting with Mavi Marmara. That's the uh, ship that was carrying aid to Raza in 2010. It was intercepted by the Israelis and 10 Turks uh, were killed in that uh, commando operation carried out by Israeli forces. And uh, it had gone downhill from there. 
when um, Netanyahu was in power, uh, there were quite a number of spats between Turkish and uh, Israeli leaders. Turkish support for Hamas was always an agenda item. Ismet just added one more layer. So now there is a de-escalation, a desire not to go back there. Is it a real honeymoon? It isn't. But a convergence of interests, also some conversation about perhaps working together for uh, ESMED energy, energy resources at a very, very early stage. But I think there's always this, been this idea of a pipeline from Israel to Turkey in the past. This idea is so, so old that back in, in the days of Turgut Azal, people were talking about a pipeline from Turkey to Israel that would carry fresh water. So this notion of a pipeline was always mood music for in both countries. Not that uh, pipeline back then was feasible and not that it's necessarily feasible at the moment, but there is an energy conversation for to transfer Israeli gas to Turkish uh, to the Turkish market and uh, Leviathan fields. But I think more important than that, there is a detente, uh, a desire not to pick public feuds, not to talk through media, as officials here like to say. And uh, I think that. We have yet to, but the Israelis are more cautious, I should add. I mean, they are pacing this. They do not want better relations with Turkey uh, to be at the cost of their other new friendships in the area. They're very, very uh, protective of Abraham Accords and, and relations with the UAE. And also, I think there's a trust issue still. Uh, they seem to pace it. There will be high level visits from Turkey. Uh, I am expecting at some point Turkish energy minister and Turkish foreign minister to travel to Israel. Turkey is very eager to uh, start a conversation on energy and ESMED energy resources. They think this, uh, Ankara believes this would be itself a huge source of attraction uh, for uh, foreign investments. Uh, not just on this, but it would be a signal to financial community, globally speaking, that Turkey is kosher, once again, that Turkey is investable. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not clear what will happen in Israel. Uh, if the current government does collapse, I think we'd be going into more of a cold peace, once again, perhaps a detente, but not really warmer relations. And... Uh, also, the two countries still need to appoint ambassadors. There's no Turkish ambassador in Tel Aviv and no Israeli ambassador here. So that is also something that will have to happen over the next six months. Mm -hmm. uh, but I should add that, you know, Israel, there is an institutional memory about relations with Israel in the Turkish bureaucracy, foreign ministry, they've been really pushing for this for years. And now I think people within bureaucracy are quite happy that things are moving in the right direction there. Well, it'd be interesting to see what happens on the Israeli political front with the, uh, the current government perhaps uh, collapsing and yet another election. And who knows, maybe Netanyahu 
returns yet again. But look, I want to ask you about about Syria and and you know with Erdogan this whole initiative that he's carrying out in Syria. A large part of the country in the northeast is effectively in the hands of the Kurds. Is that a situation that Erdogan is prepared to live with? Well, for now, it does not feature in the Turkish narrative and and in Turkey's relations with uh, the U.S. and Western partners. You're not hearing President Erdogan talk about, you know, a terrorist state, statelet in Syria that must be, um, that must end in one fashion or another. So he's clearly seeing that an escalation on that front would automatically ruin what he's trying to do with other Western allies, particularly in in his attempts to improve relations with the Biden administration. But Bill, Syria has turned into a very curious case uh, because yes, you do have a Kurdish controlled area, but you have a Kurdish controlled area that where you have regime forces, another Kurdish controlled area with US forces, another one with the Russians, and then you have a Turkey-controlled area, and then you have a opposition-controlled area with Turkish troops and peacekeepers to the South Russian. So it's, it's become this incredibly complex patchwork of different administrative units. Uh, you know, in a small space, you can travel from a Russian zone to a Kurdish zone to a Turkish zone, to an Al-Qaeda zone and to a regime area and so on. And somehow there is this equanimity because uh, surprising though it may be, people understand the value of a de-escalation and that that, that Syria could serve as a de-escalatory instrument at some point down the road. You also have a deconfliction mechanism between the US and Russia that continues to work in Syria, despite what's happening in Ukraine and the extremely tense international climate, the de-escalatory mechanism between Russia and US in Syria is unaffected. So Syria remains quiet, but super interesting to watch. Uh, We have to see if it will at some point become a a key to unlock some of the other tensions between uh, US and Russia or Turkey and, and, and US or between Turkey and the Kurds. There's always that notion that even though it looks very distant today, that if Erdogan was ever to revert back to a peace process with the Kurds, Syria would be the place to start, not Turkey itself, but Syria. Mm. Well, now, just finally, Asli, uh, we've been talking about all of these steps that Erdogan is taking uh, in terms of the, the fence mending. And as you say, he goes all in when he, when he does the fence mending or all in when he goes the other way. But I'm just wondering, is he moving from a position of weakness or is it strength? Because as you say, the domestic situation is pretty dire right now. And all of this seems to come back to the economy. Bill, this is huge, huge irony um, in Turkey. Uh, Erdogan is possibly the strongest Turkish leader, the most powerful Turkish leader. Yet his hold on power is looking increasingly 
risky because of his falling numbers. And when I say falling numbers, I mean really falling numbers because of the economic crisis in the country, very high inflation. When I say high, I mean, I don't mean 6 7%, 143 in consumer goods, according to independent sources. Depleted central bank reserves, which obviously is important because you could have a balance of payments crisis and so on and so forth. So he and, and, and all of this is resulting in, in loss of support for him. Now, Turkey has, has seen a significant enough authoritarian lurch, but so far it's always been a country where elections mattered. And though you may have an uneven playing field, and, and at times, you know, gerrymandering of sorts, it still was a country where elections on the day of the vote are transparent. So right now he has a, the president has a huge problem with his party's votes hovering around 20 plus, 25, 26, up somewhere between 25 and 30 percent. And he's in a coalition with ultranationalists. But that serves more to tie his hands than add points, limiting his options with with the Kurds and also really antagonizing some of his own voters. So he has a conundrum that he has to solve over the next year. Economy has to improve because Turkish voters do care about their bottom line. Uh, But he also has to find a way of at least securing Kurdish neutrality. That is very difficult unless you are willing to make credible uh, concessions, which would then uh, strip him off coalition with ultranationalists. So it's not an enviable position. He's been a master tactician when it comes to Turkish politics, finding a patchwork of of different coalitions and being very pragmatic, as pragmatic as he is in foreign policy, he can certainly be even more pragmatic domestically. But the gap is wide enough that, you know, a couple of moves here and there are no longer enough because what we're seeing is that he seems to be at least 10 points below possible opposition candidates such as the mayor of Istanbul or the mayor of Ankara. So he has to do something that resembles a more substantial policy shift. And and we have to see what that will be. But it's going to be an interesting area. Right now, the policy is peace abroad. But what's going to be the policy at home that would help improve his chances before next year's elections? Mm-hmm. And And I think the the biggest uh, signal is this decision to sweep the Hashoji murder under the carpet, because as you said, there are many people in positions of authority, as well as people like yourself who are still very, very angry with, with what happened there. Of course. And I have to say, I also write a column for the Washington Post, Global Opinion Opinions column, with, and, and, and Jamal was also a columnist there. And the, the sort of disappointment my colleagues have, understandably, the, the, the sort of anger and outrage they have is, is very palpable uh, because this wasn't just any odd harassment or even a, a murder of journalists. It was a horrific, graphic crime uh, with very uh, obvious uh, you know, uh, footprints. So 
I think the fact that that case is buried gives you a sense of Erdogan's desperation. I'm, I'm sure he's not, you know, on a personal level, I'm, I'm sure he's finding it very difficult to fly to Riyadh and, and uh, have these meetings. But on some level, he, he cannot afford not to. Mm. Aslan, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Aslai Aydin Tashbash, a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched the podcast, and our audience has grown tenfold to more than 5,000 listeners a month. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Asline. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on arabdigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources. Music